Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean, and I'm a person in successful long-term recovery from alcohol addiction. I've been writing about my experiences since day one, my first day of sobriety nearly six years ago at unpickledblog.com. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your story here. On this episode, I'm pleased to welcome the amazing Veronica Valley, an author and blogger, a recovery therapist, and herself a person in recovery. Veronica, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's so nice to hear your voice. Now, Veronica and I have both been active in the recovery internet world for a number of years and really familiar with each other's work, and, and this is exciting for us to talk to each other. It certainly is exciting for me. Um, same here. <laughs> I, I, it's really cool how you know we're all far apart geographically, but our I you know I see your name every day and I see your work out there all the time. So I'm really <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you one on one and and hear your story. So let's so, go same right here. I've always that. loved the sorry I've always loved the name of your blog Unpickled. <laughs> it's hysterical. <laughs> it made perfect sense on the yeah. day I, I chose it and it's it's. Fortunately, still does to this day. Yeah. It's the one thing I got right on that day anyway. That and <laughs> drinking. <laughs> but I want to start out just hearing your story in your words. What? Uh, how did you get here? What um, What was your relationship with alcohol that, that led you to where you are now? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, my sobriety date is uh, May 2nd, 2000. And uh, like yourself, I'm a person in long-time recovery. I've been... Uh, completely abstinent from all mood and mind-altering substances uh, for 16 years and however many months, nine months, something like that. Um, Oh, goodness me. Um, Well, so here's my pitch. I I feel that there's two ways that you can become an alcoholic. I think that you simply have to drink enough alcohol or that you were born one. And I just feel like I was born one. And and I say that in that I remember being um, pretty young, you know, a kid. And I remember just this feeling of just being very, very different to the other kids around me. I was um, uncomfortable in my own skin. I was aware of that. I mean, I couldn't tell you that. I couldn't put names to it. I just, it was an awareness that I had. And um, I grew up in England, and um, when I grew up in England in the 80s, it was nobody checked ID. The drinking age was 18, and I was able to get into bars at 14. When you you know when you're a young girl and you put makeup on and wear the right clothes, you can look older. And I I remember trying alcohol at that age, and it was like a light bulb going off in my mind. Um, you know, I felt comfortable in my own skin. I felt alive. I felt connected. I just you know it was just um, it was like just gold for me. And um, I grew up in that, you know, the UK has a binge drinking culture. So I fully embraced that. I, you know, I, I, I was, uh, you know, I'd been running away from my life from the word go. I, I left home at 16. I, I wanted to get out there and live in this kind of crazy party, you know, drinking and being wild to me felt like being alive. I did drugs, um, LSD, amphetamine, that kind of stuff. And I, I had a great time for about two and a half years. 
and at about 18, I uh, took some drugs and went into drug-induced psychosis and was hearing things and was paranoid and suicidal, didn't know what was going on, couldn't tell anyone because I was, I was so scared. I couldn't even put it into words. And I, I was so scared that if I put it into words, it would be real. And then I would have to do something about it. Um, and I, I woke up every day just hoping it would, it would go away. Um, and that, that was a really kind of drugs brought me to my first rock bottom because I quickly learned that I, so I was dealing with all this anxiety, panic attacks, huge part of my story. And I know that's really common for a lot of people. I was having a dozen panic, panic attacks a day, really unable to function very well. Again, couldn't tell anyone what was happening. So I had to pretend I was okay. Um, and, the only thing that really helped with that was alcohol. And that's when uh, around 18, barely legal to drink, my drinking switched from having fun to uh, helping me cope. And um, that, you know, that was almost, I spent almost nine, I was 27 when I got sober, so almost almost 10 years, nine, 10 years, desperately looking for an answer to my problem. And I thought my problem was a, was a rare mental health condition. Um, I thought that, um, you know, I had panic attacks and anxiety, um, you know, I was terrified, I was so frightened, but all the time I was trying to prove to the world that I was okay. So I kind of got through college, you know, I would be, I would be in a, before going to a lecture, I'd have to drink and, um, you know, most students drink in England. That was pretty easy at lunchtime. But if the lecture was at 9 a.m., it was a little trickier. And I, I remember being, I remember being like thinking, oh, God, like I have to go to lecture because I have to, otherwise I'll fail the course. But I can't go to lecture because I have a panic attack. So what am I going to do? It's 9 a.m. I can't drink. Okay, I'll have to drink. I'll take some vodka and I'll just drink it before my lecture. And I remember being in the bathroom like at, you know, 8.30, necking this vodka. It was disgusting. And I remember thinking, there's something not quite right about this. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder if this is what alcoholics do. And I thought, no, I can't be an alcoholic because I'm not enjoying it. I'm doing it because I have to. And I think alcoholics enjoy it. I, I don't know where that weird logic came from, but yeah. that was the rationale I'd given. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so and again, but I still never drank every day. I was very much a binge drinker. I'm highly allergic to alcohol, so I would get really, you know, terrible hangovers. I would vomit, black bile, you know. I, so I would, um, you know, we have two or three days off just to recover, and by the third day, kind of feel more or less normal and be able to start again, kind of thing. And uh, you know, I went. I did try and get help. I saw a lot to a lot of doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and. I went to churches. I went, I went anywhere where I felt somebody could help me. Um, and I sort of got treatment for anxiety and sort of got treatment for my panic attacks and got given a lot of prescription drugs, which I liked, the prescription drugs. Um, and things sort of helped for a bit, but not really. And, um, I, you know, really what I learned, Jean, is that, um, you know, first of all, I, had, I, I didn't understand what my problem actually was. I didn't understand I was an alcoholic. Um, and, and that's so sort of key, really, in, in trying to get some help. You know, they were treat, treating the symptoms, but not the root cause. And um, I suspect you weren't being honest with any of the medical professionals about how you were drinking either. Or were you? You're a mind reader. <laughs> <laughs> a lucky guess. <laughs> I, I know. Exactly. You know, I, I honestly, I mean, my recollection is probably very hazy I, I I'm sure I was asked and I'm sure I lied and rash you know rationalized but I also don't think I was in some cases kind of probed very deeply about that you know and that, yeah I, you know I was in my early 20s and I was surrounded by mirrors people who drank the same way I did and I you know we were checking boxes you know we had a job we had a degree we traveled we had a you know apartment to live in so we were checking the boxes of life so therefore in my mind that added up to me that we didn't have a problem with alcohol that what we were doing was, was normal but it, it wasn't mm-hmm. you know I had that I really had a perception that an alcoholic was a smelly old man on a bench and I was so far away from that that that's why I didn't have a problem with alcohol but I did have a problem but yeah, I mean, I, I think not not being honest 
um, certainly impeded my ability to get get help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was such a lost soul. I did a lot of geographicals. I was always, you know, the next job, the next place, the next relationship. I'm sure everything will be great once I have those things all in place and was just the architect of my own misery. Um, couldn't see that at the time, but, you know, just sort of taught pieces, anything really good or positive in my life was really unable to maintain relationships. Um, all of my romantic relationships in, in my drinking years were highly dysfunctional. Um, I, I don't really kind of look on them as relationships. They were more like hostage situations <laughs> <laughs> in that um, I took someone hostage sort of regard, you know, relevant whether I like them or they like me. I just needed someone. Aww. You poor soul. I wish I could go back in time and hug you. <laughs> I, know, I know. I feel like that as well. Well, it has did you, did you feel that at the time, though? Did you feel there was something not right about how you were approaching relationships? Or were you perplexed by why they didn't work out? I, th- I think both, to be honest. I, I, felt, I, I always felt baffled. Like, I always felt like um, life was meant to be, like, happy, you know, fulfilling. I, I understood that you weren't going to be, like, joyously happy every single second of the day, but I, I really believed it was possible in life to have a fulfilling, happy, successful life with meaningful connections with people. I believed that, but I was baffled as to how to get it. Mm-hmm. Because what I did never added up to it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Like, it's almost like, I think a lot of us know what it's supposed to look like. So we have some idea of what we're supposed mm-hmm. to move towards. But but the inside and the outside doesn't match. So how do we get there? Yeah. Because we have no idea what it's supposed to feel like, just what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, I, I would look at people in, in long-term relationships who were happy because I would... I, I mean, my relationships were so dysfunctional and just be like in awe of people who were able to, to do that. I just found that like, you know, winning the lottery, just so impossible. I couldn't imagine how people were able to do that and wanted it so desperately, you know, wanted that so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I just felt very confused, you know, that kind of not, I wish I had the instruction manual, very lost. And, and exactly what you said, really, you know, sort of trying on the outside to sort of move towards that. You know, I bought a flat with my fiance at the time, you know, and it's like, I'm checking the boxes. I'm checking the boxes. When is my happiness going to appear? Um, you know, and each sort of box you check, it just doesn't bring you any closer. And you just think, well, it's the next box. It's the next box. And, and it just isn't. Um and- it's an inside job, but boy, it sure takes a long time to learn that. Even yeah. even if someone said that, I would think I was. I know I'm doing that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. Because I was in such denial about yeah. all my coping mechanisms. I thought they were part of it, really. Yeah. Well, how, what what happened that made you start to see that things needed to, to change? Um, I so I was sort of through my twenties. I was. Definitely, like, sort of suicidal. I tried, like, once. And, and not. I didn't want to die. I just didn't know how to live. And um, so this is the funniest story. So because I had all this anxiety and panic attacks, I really found it difficult to work, like, where I had to be in groups of people. But I could really work uh, one-on-one. So I thought, in my infinite wisdom, I thought, I know, I'll be, I'll be a therapist. Because... <laughs> I can work one on one. <laughs> so I know it's insane. Um, so I, I, the local college near me at the time offered an addictions counselling course. I thought, oh, I'll do that. That sounds great. And um, so I sort of went along and kind of sat there going, ah, <laughs> oh, that's, mm. and um, well, I, you know, I, I, I uh, what actually happened was, um. I I thought, well, I need to go to some of these 12-step meetings that people are talking about in my training to see what these poor people are like, the poor people that I'm going to be helping down the road, these <laughs> poor people. I need to go and just see what they're like, these poor old homeless men. <laughs> and um, 
and at sort of the same time, it was very, it was very strange. I, I really, I didn't consciously stop drinking. I didn't wake up and say, oh my God, I have to stop. I, I knew, like I said, I knew something was very wrong. And I, it was a sort of like a very slow awakening. I just one day thought I'm not going to drink today. Just no reason. I'm just not going to drink. And that turned into a week and it turned into a month. And I kind of, and in the meantime, I'd gone to a couple of these 12-step meetings and was like, hmm. And I don't know why I went back. I, I, all of a sudden, I stopped drinking and all my fair weather friends, because I didn't have any real friends, but all my fair weather friends who I drank with kind of fell away. Um, and so I didn't really have anyone to hang out with. And so it was like this sort of all these... You know, I don't know why I went back to these meetings. I don't know why I continued with my training. But this gradual sort of awakening happened where I realized I did have a problem with alcohol. So here's the thing. I, so I went to these meetings and I would like sort of, I began to realize I had a problem with alcohol and I could kind of get the idea of that. But then I'd hear all these stories around me and I didn't identify with anybody. I just, I, I, none of these things had happened to me. I had never been divorced or bankrupt. I'd never been fired from a job. I'd never been arrested. And I didn't drink every day. I, sure, I drank in the morning, before, but I didn't do, I mean, I'd, I'd only done that a few times. I, that wasn't a regular thing. And I just didn't, I, I was surrounded by all these spectacular drinking stories. And I didn't identify with any of them. And I was kind of wavering a bit, thinking, you know, I don't know, I'm too young, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe if I just don't drink for a few months, um, and then um, I remember hearing this guy uh, at a 12-step meeting talk about fear. And he talked, spoke about fear in a way that I'd never heard it spoken about before. And he talked about being frightened of anything and everything and nothing. And that his whole life was a reaction to this fear he felt inside of him of not being good enough, of not being worthy of being loved. And the alcohol took that pain away. And I sat there and I was, that was when everything became crystal clear. Because I'd never heard anyone describe how I felt in that way before. Because I really believed I was the only one. I really believed I was the only one who had felt that way. And it was <laughs> this description of fear that really, really resonated with me. And then Everything made sense after that. Alcoholism yeah. made sense after that. Right. Isn't that the moment? I, I wish I had a nickel for every person I've heard say, I thought I was the only one. I thought an alcoholic was X, Y, and Z, and yeah. I was somehow different. And um, that, that, you know, I'll go to these meetings, but I really am different. And then yeah. the, the beauty, really, it is a beautiful thing when you hear your story come out of someone else's mouth and you yeah. realize that you're not alone. And it's a game changer. It sounds like it was for you. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said about it being an inside job, is that I understood that um, alcoholism was um, a, a, an internal condition that was manifested by by my drinking. And uh and I kind of found the, you know, the the twelve steps kind of what I found useful is um, I had in the, the the twelve steps the first one it talks about uh, a manageability, and I had equated that to external unmanageability, which I didn't identify with. I mean, my life was a little messy, but I actually had, you know, I graduated, I always had a job, had money, you know, I, I didn't have. You, you know, I just didn't have the external manageability, unmanageability that mm -hmm. I heard so many people describing. But then I learned that it also describes internal unmanageability, which means an inability to have any mastery over your own feelings or emotions, unable to know from one minute to the next how you're going to feel or how you're going to react to how you how you feel. And that was me 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like you were sober for a while before you really got recovery. Does that make sense? Like you well, quit drinking before you really, the light went off, the, the, the changes that could were possible from the inside. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, I was, I was sleepwalking through my life. And it, I, I think it was like three, six months of just sort of like listening 
like you know kind of kind you know just with this like huh and um and then when you know I kind of had that light bulb moment and I heard that this guy talk about fear that's when I kind of embarked on you know specifically doing something and that was you know process of doing embarking on the 12 steps but also doing therapy um you know meditation yoga um uh, reading a lot of self-help books, really just delving into understanding this internal condition from many, many different angles. And um, I got to about three years sober, and I, I, my life had improved dramatically, uh, just dramatically. I mean, first of all, when you drink the way that we used to drink, just not being hungover enables you to get a lot more done Mm -hmm. um so you know my life had just you know I had a career you know I had a car I had you know had friendships and at three years uh sober I was about 30 at the time I hit an emotional rock bottom in my recovery and I didn't drink or pick up but I have to say that I was making a decision to not commit suicide because I got into such a black hole in my recovery um and that was like a whole new level of recovery so what did that look like a black hole in your recovery well for me i've never heard that before well for me it was it was triggered by um it was a relationship i was um you know i'd done a lot of work on myself in the first three years i really had worked hard on myself and I'd, i'd gained some definitely some uh, rewards from doing that work, and uh, but I was still really incapable of having a romantic relationship in a functional way with somebody. And um, you know, I wanted to. I want everybody wants that. Everybody wants that kind of deep and meaningful connection. And um, I was thirty. I wanted to have a family and settle down. And and uh, I had a relationship that followed the same pattern that had always happened in my life, which was that I was always able to attract. Uh, somebody, you know, a, a guy who always thought I was amazing, and then we would have a, this relationship that was quite brief, and then they would reject me, and I would just fall into an absolute black hole of abandonment and despair. And so this was happening in recovery, and it happened, and I was terrified because, first of all, I was thinking this shouldn't be happening now. I should be better. I should be better. I'm right. sober. Why is this still happening? And also, I didn't have my anesthetic. Like I, I wasn't, I, I didn't want to drink. I didn't, you know, I, I was in a lot of pain, but I didn't want to drink. And I was terrified of living. Like, I remember thinking, I, I can't go through my life with this level of pain. Mm. It's just unlivable to do 50 years like this. And, and I really thought maybe my path is to just be alone. Maybe that's what God wants for me. Maybe that's God's will for me is to be alone because I, I can't manage this level of pain. And, and I really rejected that because I was, really didn't think that that was what God wanted to, for me. But I, I didn't really know. And it, that pain was incredibly motivating. It gave me the absolute gift of desperation. And um, I, I just embarked on really a, just a whole new level of self-examination and really looking at my patterns and my part and... Um, really getting humble and really that's when I really understood and unpicked that I was the architect of my own uh, misery you know I had these real preconceived ideas and uh, you know those preconceived ideas kind of tore relationships apart before they got started you know really still had so much low self-esteem you know you're going to reject me you're going to reject me so I would always manifest that happening and really kind of just stripping all of that away and, uh, and you know, it was really about, it was a spiritual crisis, you know, it was really realizing that I had to love myself and be whole within myself, before, you know, I couldn't expect anyone to love me when I was so needy and didn't like who I was very much, you know, some of the time and and, you know, from there really getting into that place everything really changed from there. And how how do you even begin to make those changes if if there's someone listening who this sounds familiar to and they're like, "Yep. <laughs> You're telling my story. Where do I start? Where what's the first thing they should do?" You know, um I, it, it is unfortunately so common. I'm 
subsequently, you know, I, in my work and and uh, in my daily life, I've come across so many people who are going through that level of pain. And I think, you know, there's so much, I, I understand so much more now, you know, it, it, I really believe that um, I, I'm, my next book that I'm working on is called The Relationship Myth. And I'm, I'm working on a book around relationships in that we're all looking for um, salvation and I don't mean that necessarily in a religious sense I mean that we're all looking for something to save us and we've created kind of this this belief in our culture that romantic love is the ultimate achievement and that's what will save us and I sort of bought into that I really thought a boyfriend would save me and make my life perfect and and I re- what I understood is I had to save myself and I had to love myself and um, I, again, I did it through a mixture of 12-step um, work, but at a very intense and deep level, um, therapy, um, and really, really getting honest with, with myself about, you know, how I behaved and, you know, the patterns that I realized that I was, you know, kind of setting up and just being, it's kind of this stuff going from the unconscious to the to the conscious, really seeing stuff that I'd never wanted to look at before. And from there, I began to feel a bit differently. I, I just focused on really having a relationship with myself and really, you know, loving myself. And, you know, I've been married now for, uh, is it this year? It is seven years. I've been with my husband for 11 years almost. And um, by the time I met him, I... I'd really got to a point in my life where I had just really fulfilling friendships. My career was really fulfilling. He was like the cherry on the cake, but he wasn't the cake. Before I was looking for the cake, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that analogy. I had a fork, but I really needed a cake. And the and the cake is what you made with your relationship exactly with yeah exactly with all of those kind of ingredients that I spoke about. I mean, you know, I, we use this expression: you have to work really hard on yourself. And people are like, well, what does that mean exactly? And it was like I did a lot of writing and a lot of talking to people, and I did like consistently daily looked at myself and asked questions and pushed myself out of my comfort zone. That's what I did. And that kind of, you know, these these light bulbs go on and, and we move. We move when those things happen. Does that make sense? I, it does. Yeah, it, it does make sense. And I also find in my own experience that sometimes when everything else is staying the same but I know I've changed, those the, the things around me that are unchanged, I experience them differently because I'm different. Yes. So uh, my husband and I have been married well, we've been together since we were teenagers and wow. 28 years married now. And and I would honestly, I, I would have to say from his perspective, I don't think he really would say that our marriage is that much different since I've quit drinking, uh, aside from the, you know, the practicality that I don't drink anymore. Um, I don't think he is as aware of the changes that that I'm aware of because I was so great at making everything seem fine. So I think he thought things were fine before and they're fine now. But what, from my perspective, I'm able to enjoy him so much more than I did before. I was yeah. always beating myself up. I was always, if he was quiet, I took it as, you know, some kind of a, a punishment. <laughs> I couldn't just let him be quiet. It had to be about me, you know. Yeah. And I was I was always churning on the inside and trying so hard to please and be perfect and yeah. I really I had I I really if I really was honest about it, I really didn't think he loved me. I even really wondered if my kids loved me. Wow. Not that they weren't loving, but I just didn't think I deserved it. I thought maybe they think they love me, but they're going to find out they don't and then they're wow. all going to leave me. Those were hard things to accept. And in yeah. recovery, once I started actually connecting with myself, I started to entertain this idea of, oh my God, what if they actually really do love me? What if that's real? What would that mean? I had I, And that's when I realized I really had never entertained the thought before that <laughs> that my core relationships were, you know, here by choice. And it sounds so sad now that I articulate that. <laughs> oh, 
oh, but it's an inside job. And so once I once I changed myself, all of a sudden I was able to experience the love that was always all around me, but that yeah. my, my barriers prevented me from experiencing. I think you said something really interesting, and that was a deeply revelationary to me, was um, that... And and, um, this is from this period of really self-examination and working on myself was when I I realized that I took everything personally Mm -hmm. and that that I'd always interpreted everything was something about me. Mm -hmm. And it was a mind-blowing realization when I realized that nothing was personal and nothing was about me. When when you did something or said something, it was just wasn't about me. It was about from where you're coming from. Uh-huh. You know, even if you were angry or upset at me, it was still to do with where you were at. Not you know, and that was life changing for me. Um, it changed you know all of my relationships with people when I when I finally accepted that I just people nobody thought about me. <laughs> that the right, whole world was not <laughs> Would you say that that is a a common um, misconception of people that are really sensitive, especially children that are really sensitive, and then we grow into these childlike adults <laughs> that we think things are about us. Is that common? For because you said when you were little, you felt like you know you really felt things deeply, and you always felt sort of other than and more sensitive. And is that do those do those things go hand in hand? Um, I, I guess yeah, I think so. I mean, it, they, they kind of it's it's. Um self-perpetuating isn't it sort of you just that sort of self-obsession it's there's an expression i've heard it that um egomaniac with an inferiority complex yes everybody's thinking about me and they're all thinking i'm a piece of crap yeah (laughs) and and it's a form of delusion We, we become delusional that's a delusion um, you know, I was the kind of person I would walk into an office in the morning and I'd say like, oh, hey, Jean, how was your weekend? And if you were like, yeah, fine. I would spend the whole day thinking, what's wrong with Jean? Why doesn't she like me? Did I say something? Did I do something? Mm. Well, why did, should I ask her out to lunch? What should I do? Like maybe I'll, you know, and I would be obsessed with getting you to like me again mm-hmm. because what you do is always about me. Mm-hmm. And that would consume me. Now, if I walked into the office and said, you know, hey, Jean, how was your weekend? You went, yeah, fine. I think, oh, I wonder what's up with Jean. Maybe she had a bad weekend. And then I'd go about my business. Right. And that's... Right. that's Believe it was. Yeah. Person. Yeah. And, and and just, you know, unless you specifically came and said, you know, Veronica was upset by what you said on Friday, then I would say, oh, well, let's talk about that. I would never assume... I would just assume that's your business. And if you need to talk to me, you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know... Some- it brings to mind something I read in um, Codependent No More that really resonated with me, which was that, uh, you know, codependent behavior is like doing things for other people that they don't ask you to do, like when you're always doing too much for others, but they don't really want it, and and that it's really kind of a form of manipulation to try to make them like you or feel the way you want them to feel or to, to control, you know, their feelings. And that really hit home with me because... I'm a giver. <laughs> and I always thought that that was being considerate and the idea that it was um, self-centered in any way, which is what you're, you know, that's what you're describing too. Someone says they're not having a good day and, and oh, doesn't it seem nice that Veronica's so worried about me having a bad day and now she's bringing me cookies and coffee. and blah, blah. But really, you're just trying to make them, make yourself feel better about how they made you feel. Yeah, it's purely selfish. It's not yeah. remotely selfless. It's purely selfish. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is, you know, that's what, what codependency is. And I think what's really important to note, and I say this to clients a lot, is um, it's totally, it's not about you not being a giver anymore. That's completely okay and a lovely characteristic of your personality. The problem is balance. It's mm-hmm. balance. If you get that in balance, then that's totally fine. But right now, I'd say, you know, or when you're behaving like that, it's out of balance, and that's the problem. Right. And is it motivation to some extent too? Like, do you recommend that people stop and check their motivation? Am I actually trying to be kind here, or am I trying to make myself feel better? 
Yeah, I think I think that stuff is always useful to do. Right. Um, I, I always kind of say, I have a saying like, whatever the question is, balance is always the answer. Mm. I, I, I found, you know, the longer I, I'm in recovery, that whenever I feel out of sorts, and because I feel comfortable in my own skin um, pretty much most of the time, when I don't, because that does happen, I notice it. Like, I notice it. I'm out of sorts. Like, I don't, you know, like... Maybe something will, you know, like there'll be a minor incident and I'll think, oh, like, why did Jean behave like that? And I'm like, hang on a minute. I don't usually behave like this. What's going on with me? There's something Mm. going on. It's a red flag. Something's going on with me. So the longer I've got my recovery, the more I practice this. And it is practice. I, I, these things kind of pop up and I see them pretty quickly. And then I know I need to do something about it. Like, okay, I'm, I'm, um, a friend of mine has a saying that's just so perfect. When I'm okay with me, I don't have to make you wrong. So I know as soon as I'm getting <laughs> pissed off at my husband that I'm not okay. I'm writing that down. Because <laughs> that's so I, I love that one. When I'm so okay with me, I don't have to make you wrong. <laughs> so as soon as other people start bothering me, I know that I'm not okay and I need to look at myself. And nine times out of ten, it's because my balance is off not getting enough sleep, not doing enough self-care, not eating right, working too much, something on my balance plate is off and needs adjusting. Mm-hmm. That That's basically what, you know, That in long-term recovery, I found that that is, you know, whatever the question is, balance is always the answer. You know, that one thing I always laugh about about myself is that I really love being right. I always <laughs> say, oh, and I love being right, but I just realized the flip side of that is, because I love it when other people are wrong. <laughs> so you just give me something to work on. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, that's so good. We were going to talk a little bit about parenting too, but first I want to ask you some questions about the work you do as a therapist. You work with people in recovery. How does your own recovery inform your um, your work as a therapist? Well, I... Um I've kind of I've taken a little career break because I've had a, a couple of children. I have two young children. I'm just kind of looking to start up again, uh, hopefully this year. Um, you know, one of the things I've really learned being a therapist and working with clients is that what I what I have in my recovery is not necessarily what other people want. Um, and that you know, it's it can be very personal. People really need to define their own goals and, you know, w- what recovery means for them. And we, there's, so, there's many, I do believe there's many different paths. There's many different paths to sobriety and recovery. And I really believe if it's working for you and, and the results you're getting are that you're happy and joyous and free, and by free I mean you have freedom in your mind, then you need to just keep doing what you're doing because mm-hmm. that's working. Um you know, I really love going slightly off off the subject. I really love this kind of breakthrough that's happened recently with so many sober bloggers like yourself, like myself. But there's so many people out there now mm-hmm. with, you know, just a little bit of time being really honest about what's going on. I just think, oh, my goodness, it's going to like, you know, when I in my first like four years of sobriety, I kept it really secret. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and now I don't. I'm completely, utterly transparent about my recovery to absolutely everybody um when appropriate um and i just you know that's changed so much and that's just going to benefit so many people yeah it is it really is and i the most important thing is i think to to spread the word about the fact that there are multiple pathways and that when you find one that's working for you stick with it (laughs) but i think the, the lack of that information for me kept me drinking for a long time because I only had one idea of what addiction looked like and I only had one idea of what recovery looked like and I rejected both of those things. And when I started to open my mind to the fact that I wasn't necessarily right about either, I, I started to accept that, you know, I maybe I didn't have to keep going here. I could just quit now. So I'm really glad that we're having those conversations and that, People are starting to see all the different ways that this can work, and um, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. It's it's 
I think it's the age of information that we're in, the accessibility of the Internet to stories yes. and people and communities yeah. that yeah. wasn't there before. And um, and it's an exciting time, really, for recovery because it, it's changing everything and um, saving lives, I believe, especially for women. I think women are more inclined to hide and suffer in silence, and the longer we do that, the greater the chance that, um, you know, this, this disease leads to death and there's there's just far too many people that have drowned in the hot tub or or fell down a flight of stairs or you know died unnecessarily because they were drinking and and um and they could have had help sooner and i'm just so glad that people are willing to talk about it now and i you know anonymity is important for different times and, and under different circumstances. I certainly don't begrudge anyone's anonymity. Um, can we talk about that for a minute? Oh, please, like, yeah. Um, it, was, it was not an easy choice for me to, to break my anonymity. I'm not in a 12-step program, so it wasn't you know, a, a principle I was practicing. It was totally fear-based. And, and so I, shed, I finally shed that in order to help other people. But I do think there's times and places where that can be helpful. So do you, how would you approach that with someone in terms of what are the benefits of being anonymous and what are the benefits of not being anonymous in your mind? Well, okay, so here's my take on that. I, um, I, I think, first of all, the concept of anonymity really only, it, it only applies to um, people in the 12-step program. And I think that there's a lot of parallels between the recovery community and the gay community mm-hmm. in many ways, and this is one of them. So first of all, I think that it, it, that has to be a personal decision um, that you make. You know, I, I really don't think that anybody should be outing anyone else who's in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to do that as and when you're ready. Um, I would encourage people to do it eventually because, I don't think it's ultimately good for your long-term recovery to just live with sort of a secret. And I also think that um, this is a brain disease and I think people in recovery almost treat it more like it's a, not a disease by trying to keep it, you know, secret and not tell people is, is what's kind of perpetuating this myth that it, you know, that it's something to be ashamed of. So I think Mm -hmm. that, I, I mean, I think that you do, just help people by by being honest I'm just very matter of fact you know I just mm-hmm. I mean and everyone I meet you know like people don't like really believe me because they're like they see me now they don't really believe I was this person 17 years ago mm-hmm. it's hard for them to get their heads around I mean my husband doesn't my husband's like I just can't I just can't imagine you I just can't imagine <laughs> you. um so I I really think that um so I really think that we, we, you know, you have to do that when you're ready. And but I really think that that this culture of not anonymity but actually secrecy has really done an enormous disservice to the recovery movement. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Anonymous People, but you know that says pretty much everything I'm trying to say here. But it's it's really, you know, we're not getting the the funding that we need for research. We're not advocate, you know, there's not enough advocates uh, advocating for people. And the biggest thing is people are not getting help early enough. Because they're living in shame, and we're perpetuating that, sh- perpetuating that shame by saying, you know, I don't want to tell anyone because of what they might think of me, you know. And I, I have to say, in my experience, I've never had a bad, I've had one bad reaction to telling people that I'm an alcoholic, only one, and that was my mother, mm-hmm. who is worried what other people were going to think of me. I've had nothing but positive, encouraging. Uh, reactions and here's the thing everybody on the planet has stuff everyone everybody has something that they're working on that's distressing them everybody so when you what tends to happen I feel when you disclose you know I had this problem and you know I have this problem and I'm working on it I'm getting it help is other people are like oh you know that's happening in my family too or I can relate to that because I have this going on everybody has something mm-hmm so it's like it just it leads to more authentic living. Yeah, I love that. I think there's so much freedom in authenticity, and so I love your answer. And I, I'm also finding that our world is so um, 
I mean, people have food allergies. People have diet restrictions. You know, I'm, you go to any gathering, someone's going to be gluten-free, someone's going to be vegan, someone's going to be vegetarian, someone's going to be allergic to nuts. Like, and and so to to be the person at the table who's alcohol-free, it's it's just one more, you know, it's it's just. I think it's starting to be accepted as it's your choice, it's in your best health, and um, uh, it's. It, I find it's not such a big deal. Also, I think the the less we make it a big deal, the less it is a big deal, right? Um, yes, I, I think so. I think but let's be more matter-of-fact about it, and let's treat it like other illnesses, like breast uh-huh. cancer or, you know, leukemia or diabetes let's treat it like that you know mm-hmm. people who suffer from those diseases don't necessarily you know keep it you know secret it's it's it, i think there's a massive it's the shame i think the shame really does a lot of people an enormous disservice mhm i agree i agree and i i felt the burden of it i mean i really felt the burden of it i was mm-hmm. deeply ashamed um, and part of that, I think, our addiction also leverages our shame against us, and mm-hmm. makes it, and you know, fuels it because the the more uncomfortable we are, the more we're going to drink. And um, I really, so I really think my brain was sort of was was feeding that part of it too. You know, like no one can find out about this about you because you know you're different and you're you know you're you're different than everyone else. They wouldn't understand, you know, so just here, have some wine alone. That'll help. <laughs> and um, so part of it, it, you know, is the reality of the shame and stigma in our society, but I also think that to some extent then our brains can take that and use it against us and make it seem like a bigger monster than it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, go, it also goes back to being, you know, honestly, the other thing is people really don't care. Right, which was what you were saying earlier, right? They're just not, not that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I only find people me. really... I'm yeah. Saying. I really just actually do find that um, people are really only interested if they are they themselves or have have the same problem or one of their loved ones have the same problem. Otherwise, people are really not very interested. Yeah. Oh, you know, so it, it's a great way to deflate that kind of like, oh my God, everybody's thinking about me. No, they're not. They're really not. They're thinking about what they're going to dinner. <laughs> They're thinking about the meatballs. Yeah, <laughs> basically. I have some questions to ask you about parenting okay. in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit. What are some common issues and challenges that uh, that parents find when they quit drinking and how they relate to their kids? Well, um, so... Uh, I so I have a five-year-old and almost two-year-old, so I'm really, really interested in this subject. I am. I have a blog that I'm sort of playing around with called SoberParent.com, and so my whole yeah, the whole idea really was. I mean, there's a million mommy bloggers out there with some really great ones, Um, and uh, so that niche is very well covered. And there is, you know, a few blogs with, you know. Sober Mummies is another great blog. Um, but I really, what I wanted was that, I, I mean, drinking is not my problem today, but parenting is a real challenge. And I'm going to be raising kids in this world where there's alcohol and there's drugs, and they have my uh, genetic, you know, material. And um, nothing triggers you like your kids. They really trigger your stuff. Um, and we all have stuff. We're never done. Uh, our kids trigger us to our own, you know, experiences of being parented. Um, lots of really great material to deal with there. And I was really interested in, you know, how can I parent my child as a person in long-term recovery? Because I do think there's a bit of a difference. There is a bit of a difference. We have had different experiences. You know, when do we tell our kids? How do we tell our kids? What, you know, my kids grow up in a house that uh, we, I mean, we have a bottle of wine here and my, my husband has some like, I don't know, he has this kind of like brandy thing he puts in a hot chocolate once in a blue moon. Uh, and there's a couple of beers somewhere from when, you know, from when we had guests who drank at New Year's and that'll be around until probably Easter or something. But they don't, they, we don't drink. My husband, my husband's not in recovery. He just doesn't drink. Um, 
So we don't, you know, we don't celebrate with alcohol. We just, you know, they're just not around it. And, you know, other kids are. And, you know, that can be entire if that's modeled in a way that's appropriate, that's, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And other kids are, are around people who drank kind of the way that we did. Um, and so I'm interested, how are my kids, you know, how's that going to be for my kids growing up in this environment? Is that going to be really positive for them? Or is it, you know, as they get older, are they going to be make, is it going to make them more curious? You know, how can I, how can I parent them to best equip them to deal with what I know they're going to go into? Because mm-hmm. it, it scares the living daylights out of me. You know, one of the things I really wanted to do, and I'm sort of slowly kind of doing is trying to interview parents in long-term recovery who have got kids older than me and I so I can pick their brains you know mm-hmm. what like what did you do what did what what did your kid come home drunk when they were 15 if so what what did you how did you deal with that and what did you say and because I really wanted to you know for my own personal benefit and I I, I was you know I kind of hope that other people may be interested from this perspective as well is you know to get this kind of body of information that we can use as a resource um, for the next generation. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so helpful because I think sometimes we are uh, the only model we have is our own parents, right? That's yes. our most normal yes. model. Yes. And bless their hearts, our parents produced yes. us at little alcoholics, so that's not to yeah. say it's their fault, but um, yeah. if it's hard to change a pattern when you don't have other models to follow. So I'm happy yeah. that you're having that dialogue. And that's another thing a lot of parents don't talk about, whether they're in recovery or not. They don't talk about their kids coming home drunk or how they handled those things because they're, you know, protecting their family image or their kids' image. And and mm-hmm. um, and I think I'm not sure we're doing ourselves or our kids any favors by being afraid to have those discussions either. The, the two the two things that I'm really I've learned I'm really trying to focus on in my own parenting and I'm kind of sort of putting this information on the blog is um, how essential attachment is not just to really young children but actually as they get older into teenagers there's a, an amazing book you should read called Hold On to Your Kids by Dr. Gabriel Mate that really oh. talks about how important attachment is to teenagers. They desperately need to attach to their primary caregivers. And if they don't, they attach to their peer group. And that's lethal. It's mm. really, really interesting. I really recommend Hold on it. To your kids. And Gabor Matei is a great Canadian. Yes, yes. Um, it's, it's co authored with somebody else. I can't remember the other author's name, but it, it's really worth reading. Bit scary, but really important information. And so. So it's, it's, you know, I think we understand attachment's important in really young kids, but it's actually really important in teenagers and tweens as well. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I, I, and sort of going back to our own parenting, is, is really supporting my children to have an emotional language, to be able to articulate their feelings and not be scared of their feelings and, and really supporting them in age-appropriate ways to do that because I feel that that's at, at the root of you know, so much addiction is just having all of these feelings and no idea what to do with them or how to process them. That's brilliant. Wow. <laughs> I wished I uh, had heard this conversation, well, when I was a kid, for starters, but yeah. <laughs> at least when I was parenting. My my sons are all in their 20s now, and they're doing great, thank goodness, but I think other uh, things we did right was just sort of the inadvertently we did things right, you know. Um, we've certainly made lots of mistakes, and... Um, I'm learning now the importance of attachment um, and finding it really fascinating, you know, in terms of how I can use that information to heal myself. I can only imagine how empowering it would be as a parent of young children. That's so great. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, when I, had, when I had, had my kids, Gina, I was absolutely determined I was going to be perfect. I really, really was going to be perfect. <laughs> How'd that go? My mother-in-law says, mm. well, you know, the kids haven't read the book. They haven't read the parenting book. So yeah. They don't know. <laughs> and I, I know I made mistakes. And um, I, I think, again, what I've learned as a, you know, as a therapist, as a person in recovery and as a parent, actually, I have a blog about this. Mistakes are the juice of life. It's not that we make mistakes. It's how we respond to them. And actually, the juice, that's the juice of life, is the the 
the learnings that we can get from mistakes are so enriching. Mm. So I try and use that in parenting. It's like, um, you know, when I have made mistakes to really, you know, talk to my son about that and, and own it. And, you know, one of the things my husband and I try and do when we have family meals is not just say, like, how was your day and what was a good part of your day. We try and say, well, what really good mistakes did you make today? And my husband say, oh, I did this. But then this happened and I learned that. And to try and just kind of, you know, let our kids know that making mistakes is totally, it's like the best thing ever. Yeah. Because it's the juice of life. Right. And that helps eliminate the idea that you have expectations for them to be perfect. Because really that perfection yes. nonsense is, is what got a lot of us into trouble. Yes. Right? Yes. I love Absolutely. that. Yeah. So you know, I, I wanted I mean, to mention to you that um, my dad quit drinking as a very young man. He was in his early 20s, so before he wow. was married. So from as early as I can remember, and I'm the youngest of three kids, so my sisters would, I remember my sister saying, you know, our dad's an alcoholic. And I was like, what? No, he's not. And so I said to him, Dad, is that true that, you know, my sisters say you're an alcoholic? And he says, yeah, I am. I I haven't had a drink in, you know, 20 years or whatever it was at the time. It's now 50-some years. And he said, but when you're an alcoholic, so I said, well, aren't you all better then? Like, you're not an alcoholic. And he said, no, when you like when when you have alcoholism, it's forever. So even though I don't drink, I can never drink because it's a forever thing. And I always sort of felt like that was his superpower. You know, I remember thinking it was a really great comfort to me as a little kid to not ever have to worry about my dad drinking because he never would. And um, so what, even though my kids were teenagers, when I quit drinking, I uh, was really quite open with them about it. I, didn't, I wasn't open with them about my drinking, but I was open about my recovery because I, you know, hearkened back to that memory of what a, what a good feeling it was to know that I had a parent in recovery. So I'm I'm thinking wow. for your kids what a what a superpower they see in you for that. Well, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. It's a, it's it's really the great being a parent is is just the the greatest adventure, and I am infinitely grateful that I got the opportunity to be a mother to my boys. They they just are beyond the, the biggest gift I could ever have. Ah, that's lovely, and you're so present mm. for them. Isn't that the greatest part of being sober? Is just that you're so present. Yeah. You have the capacity to be present. <laughs> you don't want to yeah. choose it every moment, but yeah, I can't imagine what it'd be like to parent being hungover. I just, I mean, it's bad enough not getting a good night's sleep. Yeah. Oh, my heart goes out to anyone that's in that yeah. position right now. Yeah. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to mention two books that are available on your website. So, veronicavelli.com. You've written two books: Why You Drink and How to Stop, and Get Sober, Get Free. And there's links to both of those books on your website. And as I was looking at the reviews from them, I did a squeal when I saw that Kristen Johnson from Third Rock from the Sun, she's the author of Guts, she had beautiful things to say about your book. You must be so thrilled at the great response you've gotten for your work. Yeah, yeah, Kristen Johnson is amazing. Uh, if it, you haven't read her book, Guts, it's, it's, I have. It's, oh, it's brilliant. It's so funny as well. So funny. And I particularly love it because she was in England and described being the British Health Service. It's just really fantastic. Uh, she, I've met her on Twitter, and she has just been a massive supporter of my blog. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Um, and, yeah, she's the real deal. She really is. And, um, yeah, I was incredibly touched and flattered that she would do that. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And, um, and so you're, you're working on a new book now. When is that coming out? Soon, soon, <laughs> in the near future. Yeah, I, I really, I'm desperate to kind of get it done, but um, yeah, I have two little kids, so enough said. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, I'm amazed that you do everything that you do. Well, one other thing that's coming up for you and I both is the She Recovers in New York City conference. Yeah, that's happening May 2017, and I know that there's still a handful of tickets. It's it's almost sold out, but there are. Still a few at the time of this recording. They're available on SheRecovers.co. This is an amazing weekend. There's four headline speakers: Glennon Doyle Melton of Monastery, 
uh, author and motivational speaker Gabby Bernstein, Elizabeth Vargas of 2020, and Marianne Williamson. So four headline speakers, and then ten of us sober bloggers are going to be there, too, hosting an event and meeting people and just doing social media and, you know, connecting. And so really exciting that we're all going to get to meet in person and then meet, you know, 400 women in recovery at this event. I know. I do, just as you were saying that, I don't know who I'm, what I'm more excited about. Like, I'm excited about each of those speakers, and I don't know which one I'm most excited about. It's like, oh. I know. It's like a smorgasbord that's got lobster and cheesecake and <laughs> stuffed potatoes. <laughs> it's just going to be it's so great. It's a smorgasbord of self-care. Yeah. And I'm curious your perspective on this, knowing what you know about recovery and healing. I think the most powerful thing of that weekend is the coming together of all these women. So something magical happens when we connect with other people, yes. especially if we've been isolating in our addiction and our recovery. Um, can you talk about that for a little bit? What is the power of connection? How, why does that help us? What happens? You know, I honestly think that's just when we know God. It's There's something about that. We... Connection, it's attachment. That that's what it is. Is we we have to to truly know ourselves and to truly know God. We have to be connected to other people. And I think that magic that you're talking about is is God. Is the higher power. Is the universe. Is the whatever you want to call it. That's what it is. Ah, oh, yeah. We see it in each other's eyes, right? Mm, mm. We feel it. That's so beautiful. Well, we've rounded out our hour already, Veronica. And I think, you know, talking about the universal connection and the, the power of, uh, of universal love that we find in one another is a great place to, to end our discussion for today. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Any last words? Um, well, definitely if anyone's listening and coming to She Recovers, please come and say hello. That would be fabulous. And I just think, you know, keep living your truth. That's all you can do each day is live your truth reach out, connect, get help. That's fantastic. Veronica, thank you so much for being on the Bubble Hour. I uh, I just love hearing your beautiful voice, and <laughs> I can't wait to meet you in person in May. Same here. I'm really looking forward to it. And listeners, you can head on over to Veronica's page to learn more, to read her blog, to order her books. That's veronicavalley, V-A-L-L-I dot com. And SoberParent.com. Right, Veronica? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll see everyone in New York, too. That would be wonderful. I'm Jean. I write the blog Unpickled, and you are listening to The Bubble Hour. So, everyone, thank you so much for another great episode. And until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame Right behind We think you're strong
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.